Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. For over 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering together as what we call the church. But what's it all about? Why do we exist? How do we become a people that bring glory to God and good to the community in which we live? Over the centuries, we've been called many things, a mission, a hospital, a temple, a classroom, a family, a people who live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. This is what we're all about. This is where we belong. This is what we're called to be. This is us. Well, this is week number two of our series that we're calling This Is Us. And over the next six weeks together, we are going to try to answer this question, why does the church exist? What's the, what's the purpose of the church? And, and then to try to answer uniquely, where are we as a local church body going? You know, a few weeks ago, I was sitting across the coffee table from a friend of mine who is also in ministry, and she leaned in and she said to me, Ryan, I'm I'm not sure what I believe anymore. And what she was talking about was not what I believe about Jesus or what I believe about theology. What she was actually talking about was, Ryan, I don't know what I believe about the church anymore. She'd gone through a season of being wounded by the church, and it started this journey for her of starting to ask questions. What's the purpose of this, of all of this? And I think one of the resounding echoes in our societal moment is this idea of deconstruction. Have you heard people talking about that? Rethinking what they've believed and what they've been handed as far as faith goes. And, and indeed, every single deconstruction, quote-unquote, deconstruction story is unique. There's as many deconstruction stories as there are people deconstructing. So we don't want to paint in broad strokes, but for many of the people that I've talked to, one of the anthems that seems to rise up is, I was hurt by the church. Now, I'm not so sure that you can technically be hurt by the church, just to be clear. Uh, The church is a group of people. You can be hurt by people who are followers of Jesus, though. You can be hurt by people who are a part of the church, and unfortunately, many people have been. Her story isn't all that unique, unfortunately. As I was thinking about this idea, I was uh, drawn back to the very beginning of Philip Yancey's great book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And in that book, he talks about um, an interaction he had with his friend who was from Chicago, who was talking to a woman, and here was the way the story went. He said, a prostitute came up to me in wretched straits. She was homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her two-year-old daughter to men. She had to do so, she said, to support her drug habit, and I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. At last, I asked if she'd ever thought about going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face, his friend said. Church? She cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. 
I reread that story this week and I thought, God, how do we get there? How, how did we get to the place where when you walked this earth, Jesus, prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners flocked to you? And for some reason, they are repulsed by your church. What, what happened? Where, where, where did we go wrong? Where did we get off track? I walked into a coffee shop a little while ago and I saw on the wall this statement, everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. Be kind, always. And I thought, what if, what if church became a safe place for, for people who were struggling? who were in the midst of the battle, that instead of getting shot at inside the church, what if, what if they started to find healing and restoration and hope? What if the church became the place where people flocked to deal with their battle rather than ran from it? See, see we're going to look at a story today where we're going to see Jesus do just that. But before we get to the story, I actually want to take you to the very end. I want to take you to the crescendo. So if you have your Bible, will you open with me to Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. This is really where the story that Mark tells us about Jesus lands. It's sort of the point of, of all of it. And in verse 15, are you there yet? Sorry, I sort of snipered you with get out your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 2. I'm jumping right in. Mark chapter 2, verse 15, it says this. And as he reclined at table in his house, this is talking about Levi, who's just been called as a disciple. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, in the first century, you had table customs that meant um, something more than just eating with somebody means today. It means that you're welcoming them into your family. It means that, that they're a part of what you're doing, that there's a, a societal fabric that's woven together at a table. And when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, it meant that he was welcoming them. And they're going, what's the deal? This isn't how the quote-unquote Messiah should be acting. And then Jesus says this, he says to them, he heard them and, and he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. You, you don't, you don't go to the doctor if you're feeling great, unless it's for a well check, which by the way, we'd suggest, but, but you know what Jesus is saying, like you don't go if you're feeling awesome. You go if you're sick, you go if you're hurting, you go when you're wounded. He says, but those who are sick, that, that's who goes to the doctor. And here's what Jesus said. He said, here's my point. I came. The reason I'm here, Jesus says. The reason I showed up on the scenes of history, the reason that I was born of a virgin, the reason I'm standing before you now, my purpose in coming is to, not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus goes, look around the table. That's actually who I'm here for. Now, here's my proposition for this morning. Here's my thesis for this morning. If we are going to be a church that's sent to live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, if Jesus said, my mission is not to call the well, but the sick, my mission is not just to gather a bunch of righteous people, but to go to people who are sinners, then our mission must be the same as Jesus's mission. Amen? 
You might say it like this. I couldn't find out who this saying is originally attributed to. Not me, but here's how the saying goes. The church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. A hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. I think most of us would agree that we would rather go to a museum than a hospital. Now, some of you younger kids, you may go, I'm not sure I agree with that. Fair enough. Most of us would rather go to a museum than we would go to, rather go to a hospital. But if we're hurting, if we're wounded, if we're bleeding, we don't want to go look at Monet. We want to see a doctor. We want to find hope. We want to find healing. And what might it look like for the church to be that place when people are hurting that they go, I've got to... I've got to be around the people of God because I know, I know, I know that they care about me and they will help me heal. That's where the story ends. Jesus says, this is why I came. But would you flip back to the very beginning of Mark to see where the story began? Mark's gonna tell a story like this about Jesus, he says, verse one, and when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. See, Capernaum was where Jesus made his base camp after being driven from Nazareth. It was a place he called home. Verse two, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So here's the picture. The house is so full that you couldn't even get in the doors if you tried. People are packed in, hanging on every word that Jesus is preaching. Verse three, and they came bringing a paralytic carried by four men. Now, here's the idea. The mat was probably similar to a mattress or a blanket. And each of these four men had one corner of that mat and they were bringing their friend to see Jesus. But when they could not get near the crowd, they removed the roof above him and made an opening. Do you get the picture in your mind? Just look up and imagine an opening being made, okay? And they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, um, in ancient Israel, most houses had a staircase on the outside that would bring you up to the roof. The roof was flat. It was made of clay. And oftentimes people would sleep up there because it got so hot inside at night. They would sleep up top. And so when they removed the roof, really what they did was they dug a hole in the roof and they lowered their friend down. You get the picture in your mind of what's going on? It's in this text, the, the, this story, that we're going to see this idea come to life, that the church, because they're following in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, is designed to be a hospital for sinners. And there's two primary ways that that plays out. Look at the first one with me. It's in verse 5. It says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son... Your sins are what? Forgiven. Now, if you're one of those four men that carried your friend, dug a hole in the roof, lowered him down to Jesus, and you hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, my guess is that you look down that hole and go, hey, Jesus, sort of misreading the situation here. 
We weren't primarily worried about his sins. We are primarily concerned with his legs. Thank you very much. If you could heal his legs, that would be wonderful. And then we can talk about his sins at some other point. And yet, and yet, the Messiah knows our hierarchy of needs better than Maslow. Okay? Now, this is going to be triggering for some of you because I'm going to go back to, to high school a little bit. All right? Do you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Remember where, where he, I know some of you went, ooh, yikes. No, I didn't, I got a, got a C on that test. But here's what Maslow, this um, American psychologist suggested that there's a hierarchy of needs in your life and mine, and the base level needs have to be met before we can start climbing that proverbial ladder. And here's what Jesus says. It's actually not just food, water, warmth, or rest that are on the foundation of your hierarchy of needs as a human being. Actually, what's on the base of your needs is forgiveness. And that's what he's saying in saying, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is going after the most important thing in that man's life first. And the great physician, who's who's the, the doctor, the hospital, he provides spiritual renewal through forgiveness. That's what Jesus is doing. Son, your sins are forgiven. And I, I wanna drill down here for a few minutes this morning and do some theology together as a church family because this is so important. It's central to the reason that Jesus came and it's central to the gospel that we preach. Why is forgiveness necessary? Why is forgiveness on the bottom of that pyramid? Well, forgiveness is necessary because sin is a reality. In fact, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person in this room, every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth other than Jesus has sinned and therefore has fallen short of God's glory. In our statement of faith, we define sin like this, a voluntary act of personal disobedience to the revealed will of God. And the devastating nature of sin is that it leads to death. The wages of sin is death. And you see this pictured in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 that Adam and Eve are designed to and, and placed right in this garden to live in relationship with God. But when they sin, they sever relationship with the author of life. They're cast out of Eden, east of Eden, and they are then to receive all of the punishment of sin, which results in eventual death for them. It's a devastating picture of life without God. See, because God is holy, sin cannot stand to be in his presence. It's a bleak picture, a life under sin without God. So God's way of dealing with our sin problem is forgiveness. See, God doesn't ignore your sin. He never will. God doesn't look the other way. God doesn't look at you and go, oh, come on, next time. Try harder little bit of improvement, and next time you're going to nail it. That's not the way he deals with sin. The way that God deals with sin is through forgiveness. In the Greek, it's the word aphemi. Would you say that with me? Aphemi. And it literally means to carry away or to cast off. It's the reason that the psalmist will write and will say, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he, what? 
remove, cast away, take away, carry away our transgression from us. It's the reason that when John the baptizer saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, take a look at him. The Lamb of God who, oh, come on, let's read this together, church, takes away the sin of the world. Oh. Well, you may be asking, okay, Ryan, so God deals with our sin through forgiveness, but how does Jesus forgive? See, Jesus forgives by, he takes your sin away by taking it upon himself. That's how Jesus forgives. He takes your sin away by taking it upon himself. See, see, sin is a little bit like um, the way that Einstein described the first law of thermodynamics, that, that energy cannot be destroyed. It can only be transferred from one thing to another. Sin is the exact same way, that you can't just remove it. You have to do something with it. And so what, do, what does God do with it? He places it all on the shoulders of Jesus. So he carries our sin so much so that the apostle Paul will write to the church in Corinth and say, for our sake, he made him Jesus to be sin. He's carrying this for us, friends, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reformers called this the great exchange that all of the sin that was on your ledger is transferred to Jesus, and all of the holiness and righteousness that was on his ledger is transferred to you. Now, in case you're not tracking with me, let me just sort of insert this. That's a great deal for you. <laughs> Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Somebody say, amen. 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 And we receive all of this by faith in Christ and only by faith. And you may be going, okay, well, Ryan, so uh, God deals with our sin problem through forgiveness. He forgives by Jesus carrying all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our brokenness to the cross. What does forgiveness result in? So glad you asked that. Let me give you three things, and I'm going to try my best to unpack these but fly through them. Number one, sin results in the canceling or carrying away of, or forgiveness results in the canceling or carrying away of the punishment of sin, which is death. For the wages of sin is death, but, oh, that's a great word in the scriptures. This is what you earn, but this is what you get. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through forgiveness, we are moved from eternal death to eternal life because the punishment has been canceled. It has been paid by our Messiah on the cross. It's taken away. But I need to, as your pastor, I just need to tell you today that it's not part of it that's taken away. It's all or nothing. And either, either Jesus takes your punishment for sin upon himself or you take it upon yourself, but God in his justice and righteousness will not overlook our sin. Which is why Jesus begins by saying, I know your legs are a problem, but let me speak to the deeper need in your soul. Through forgiveness, the punishment for sin is canceled. Secondly, through forgiveness, our guilt is taken away. Once again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, there is therefore now no condemnation. I love that word now. 
Because you can read it tomorrow and it'll be just as true then. You can read it on Wednesday when you screw up big time and you can go, Lord, there, even because of what Jesus has done, he's carried this away. There is no condemnation. There's nothing that stands in between you and me because of what Jesus has done. And here's what I found in my life, and I don't know if you would echo it as true in yours. It's a lot easier for me to believe that Jesus has forgiven my sin than it is for me to forgive myself for some of my decisions. And I think one of the things that God wants to do in our midst as he walks in our midst today is to come alongside, to tap you on the shoulder and to say, because of what I have done on the cross, you no longer need to carry guilt. You no longer need to carry shame. You don't need to carry anything that I carry to the cross. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Finally, forgiveness removes the power of sin. I love the way Paul wrote this. He said, for sin will have no dominion, no rulership, no reign, no power over you. Why? Well, because you are no longer under law, but you are under grace. Through forgiveness, Jesus takes away the punishment, the guilt, and the power of sin. And some of you are here today so that you can, for the very first time, put your faith in Jesus and be forgiven. I long for you to receive this. If you're a follower of Jesus and have been for years, my hope is that as we recount the forgiveness of God, your heart starts to swell with gratitude for the greatness of his grace and mercy in your life. He sees you as clean, as holy, as spotless, as blameless because of what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Sons and daughters through Jesus, your sins are are forgiven. They're forgiven. And all of this, you just need to know, all of it flows out of God's heart for, of love for you. All of it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only one and only son. And I've just been thinking about this week. God, how did this message get, get lost or muddied? How did the church become a place where people think they're condemned rather than forgiven? I mean, I look back at the life of Jesus, I think most poignantly about the woman who's caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And one by one, Jesus sends away the religious people that want to throw stones at her. And then he looks at her at the very end of that and he says, daughter, um, where are your accusers? Where are the people that want to condemn you? And she goes, they're They're all gone. And so Jesus says this to her. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. I don't know about you, but as a church, that's the message that I want us to preach. Are you with me? That's the message that I want to get out there. That's the message that a hurting world needs to hear. They need to hear, yes, you have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. That is a reality, but you can never out the grace of God. He is always chasing, always coming after you through his own body given and his blood shed. He is on the prowl. He's the hound of heaven coming after you. I love the way Jill Briscoe put it. She said this, he came, speaking of Jesus, in flesh to forgive us, to run down the road from heaven to earth and to say to a world of prodigals, come on, come home. So to all the prodigals in the room today, Come on. Come home. That's the offer that Jesus makes in this text, and it's the offer he makes to every single one of us today. 
as well. So Jesus meets the, the spiritual needs of this paralyzed man first, and then look at what he does next, verse 8. It says, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves. So Jesus goes, I know what you guys are thinking. Which, by the way, he says the same thing to you today. I know what you're thinking. I know what's going on on the inside. And he said, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. Jesus' point is that forgiving sins is harder than healing legs. He's going to give his life for the forgiveness of sins. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed, glorifying God and saying, we have never seen anything like this. Yeah, they had never seen anything like this because what they are seeing in the combination of the forgiving of sins and healing of spiritual needs and the healing of physical needs, they are seeing a demonstration of the reality that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of light is pushing back the darkness in all of its Forms. God is on the move, and he is putting the world back together through Jesus. And as the great physician, Jesus provides personal restoration through healing. Personal restoration through healing. Now, I know that there are some who, when we start to talk about healing, go, Oh, no. Is this going to get weird, Paulson? Is this going to get strange? And, and so, let me just maybe point out the elephant in the room. I think there's two equally erroneous sides of the pendulum when it comes to discussions about healing. The first is God always heals exactly like you want him to all the time. And if he doesn't, it's because you did something wrong. Your prayer was off, your faith was off, something's going on in your life, whatever, right? There's a a bunch of different reasons, but God always heals the way you want if you um, say the prayer right, have enough faith. Here's the other side of the pendulum. The other side of the pendulum is God doesn't heal anymore. And I get it. There's some here you say, listen, I just don't think God heals in the same way that he used to. Okay, but he still is at work. He's still on the move. And my guess is you also believe that he forgives sins just like he used to. So why wouldn't he couple that with physical renewal and restoration? Did you know that 38% of the stories in the Gospels about Jesus are about him healing? 38% of those stories are about him healing healing somebody. You know that James writes to the church and says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Like that's the the base foundational level spiritual need that everybody has. Confess your sins that you may be, what, say it with me, church, healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I'm calling us as a church, let's not fall prey to either side of the pendulum. But let's pray for people's healing and trust God with the outcomes. Amen? You know, as a group of elders, one of the things we absolutely love to do 
is to anoint people and pray that God would heal and restore. You can reach out to us anytime to do that as a group. I, I'm just gonna speak to any of the other elders in the room wanna say amen to that. It is an absolute honor to bring you before the throne and to ask God, would you work in a miraculous way in this life? And we'll trust you with the outcomes. I mean, I, I would invite you to pray. Would you pray with me that God would heal and that God would restore, that he would heal physical hurts and wounds, that he would heal emotional hurts and wounds, the grief that people are carrying. I mean, we have grief share, we have divorce care classes where we wanna say to people, we wanna get in the game with you. You don't have to hurt alone and you don't have to heal in isolation. In fact, you probably won't, probably won't. So we wanna walk with you through the emotional wounds, the relational wounds. I want us to be a place where marriages are restored, where friendships are rebuilt and where forgiveness is offered and grace is extended. We have classes for this. We have ways that we want to come alongside and help you. I want us, I long for us even more and more to be a place where people who are dealing with mental illness can find help. It's running rampant in our day and our time. As people have been isolated, these issues are just coming more and more to the surface. And I just want to say, I want to beg with you as a church to say we have resources to help people, but they might need you to connect them. They might need you to, to get in the game. We have a, an entire counseling and care department who would love to walk with people, but we need to know the needs in order to meet them. And then finally, the spiritual needs. I don't know how many times I've read recently in just my year through the, reading through the Bible and reading in the New Testament that Jesus driving out demons and healing those who are oppressed. This is something he still does today, and it's a way that he calls the church to step into his mission as well. Oh, would you pray with me? Would you pray that we would become the kind of church that's a hospital for people who are dealing with these kind of needs? And in fact, uh, we already are in so many ways. Already are in so many ways. And I just want you to hear this morning from one of our members. His name's Mark Tribule. And over this last few months, the last six months, really the last nine years, he's walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And I want you to hear from his own story in his own mouth how the church has been used by God to walk with him. My name is Mark Tribule. Um, I am a licensed marriage and family therapist uh, down in El Cajon for family-focused Christian counseling. Uh, my wife and I started here, coming here just because we didn't know where else to go. And while we were both introverts, we walked away not talking to anybody that knew this was our home. Almost 10 years ago, uh, Lori was di diagnosed with um, stage two breast cancer. She battled just over nine years. Um, and then six months ago, almost seven months ago, she passed away. Being married 23, almost 23 and a half years, I, I still love her despite everything that was going on. She was always a beacon, uh, always a beacon to God and always a beacon to really who I was, even though I couldn't see it for years. One of the things that she said often to me, especially in her first years of marriage, was I can't wait for you to see what I see in you. As a therapist, and as especially as a Christian therapist, I know that this is the story, that this is what God wanted, what God has allowed, and there's a multitude of purposes for it. But as a person. I hate it. 
the one person that I would want to share this with is God. Coming back to church has been one of the hardest parts of this. Um, it's like one of my greatest support systems, but I don't want to be here. And that's hard to say because I love this church. I, I love everything about it. At the same time, the support and love that my family has received through the last 10 years has just been, oh my gosh, beyond abundant. I, I realize my story is just one story and that there are tons of people in this church that need help that are not getting helped. If you don't allow yourself to be vulnerable and ask for help, then nobody's going to know. You know, other than, the, I'm going to say, that nudging of Christ, that nudging of the Spirit, going, hey, reach out to these people, it's going to be really difficult for the church to meet a need when they don't know the need's there. If we learn how to put our mask down and take that off and just allow people to see the pain, allow people to see the joy, allow people to see, hey, this is actually what's really going on inside me. I just imagine the... Uh, the help that can come from that. Last thing we want to do is feel pain. But you gotta, you gotta feel the pain. You gotta allow yourself to feel that heart-wrenching pain that nobody wants in order to come out the other side. I want to say thank you to Emmanuel Faith. Um, can't imagine having to walk this road. I can't even imagine walking it now, but without the support that I've had from Emmanuel Faith, uh, from the pastors, from the staff, from just the members, from the believers. I, I just am so thankful that God had brought both Lori and I here and that I'm still here. Uh, I love Mark's um, honesty, his plea to you, to me, to not suffer silently. Church can really only meet needs that it knows about. So please, if you're, if you're walking through the valley, reach out. I love that as a body, as a church, we're a place that has space for the pain. The real life pain that people walk through because we live in a broken world. And if you were to talk to Mark more and drill down, I mean, he would tell you about the meals that were brought, about the people who watched his kids, the, the um, handbell choir that showed up in his backyard to play for his wife. I mean, he would tell you a list of things. And I just kept thinking, um, gosh, God's provision in Mark's life is, is beautiful and that he placed him in this wonderful body to walk through this challenging, insanely difficult, painful season with. But what if Mark hadn't been a part of Emmanuel faith? What if? Because there's a, hundreds of people out there in our neighborhoods just like that. And I'm struck by this story in Mark chapter 2 because there's two, two pictures of, of different groups of people. And one of the groups of people is sitting there and they're listening to the words of Jesus. But ironically, they're unintentionally creating this barricade, aren't they? Like they're making it hard for people to get to him, that need to encounter him. And then you've got this other group. I just call them the carriers. 
That the people who are grabbing a corner and saying, whatever it takes. And I think there's a time and a place to listen to the words of Jesus. And then there's also a time and a place to carry a corner. And if we're only listening, my guess is we're creating a barricade rather than being part of the mission. So the invitation for all of us today is to say, okay, Jesus, what might it look like for us to be carriers? And I'm going to fly through these because I'm out of time. Number one. The carrying was done in community, not in isolation and not as an individual. I think that the, the way that the Bible paints a picture, scriptures paint a picture of evangelism is, um, is it's done in community, not just one-on-one, but hey, come and see what God's doing in the lives of other people. But that means you've got to talk to people and you've got to invest in people and you've got to ask questions. You've got to dig into each other's lives, even here on a Sunday. Please, 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 can we push into that? We're part of a community of faith together. Second, they were persistent. For crying out loud, they dug a hole in a roof. I, I often give up at a simple no or a glance where they're like, you can tell they don't want to talk about Jesus. And I'm like, all right, fine. They're like, no. We're gonna go and I'm gonna dig a hole in this roof and lower you down. And I just wonder like, was there some sort of pulley system? Or were they just going, if Jesus can heal his legs, he can heal his arm too. And just like, (laughs) Jesus, it's you, right? I don't know, but I know they were persistent. Third, uh, they were invitational, meaning that they're just going, hey, Jesus, we understand that our part is to give an invitation. Our part is to grab a corner. Your part is to heal. And we don't want to confuse the two. We just want to get people to your feet. And so as I've thought about this, I've thought, where could you invite people to? Well, here's my list, okay? You can invite people to worship with you on Sunday. I think that's maybe the easiest way. But you could also invite people to Alpha that's for new believers or pre-believers. It's launching later on this year. You can invite people to your house for dinner. You could invite people to your life group or AVF, to a discovery Bible study that you start. We're going to get you resources in the coming weeks, to a service project, to a recovery group like Set Free, Divorce Care, Grief Share, or Ministry for Abused Women that we have. You could invite people to Truths That Transform. There are 49 people that launched in that class just two weeks ago. It's not too late to sign up and to find freedom. You could get involved in the marriage class that's starting this Wednesday right here at church or our growth track for discipleship that we, discipleship that we launched just last week. You don't just need to invite people or you, this isn't your only option to invite people to come to worship. There are tons and tons and tons of ways that you can invite people. The question is, will you? Will you? And then finally, I love that This endeavor was relational. They knew this man. They knew his needs. They'd seen his pain. It broke their heart. They had compassion on him. And it was shown in the care that they extended. And I love, I love, I love that these guys aren't going, hey, to their friend, hey, let us, we just just need to do some presuppositional apologetics with you. We need to convince you that Jesus is Lord. No, they're going, hey, here's the deal. There's a time and a place to answer questions. I get it. But they're saying, we need to get you to the feet of Jesus because if you encounter him, your life will be changed. And our central purpose as a church is not about having great preaching or great praise music, but on leading people to encounter the great physician. His name is is Jesus. So friends, we are a hospital and that means we embrace the messiness.
by pursuing the hurting, the broken, the doubting, and the sinners, because we believe that God wants to use us to lead people to the feet of Jesus. And hey, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you, we are all those sinners. We are all in that category. Being a hospital means that we welcome the hurting and we help them move toward wholeness. And so what if, friends, what if, what if we really believed that Jesus wanted to use us to bring others to his feet? What if, what if we became the kind of church that invited people at grocery stores and gas stations and in neighborhoods and workplaces? What if every single person in North County understood and knew that at Emmanuel Faith, it was okay to not be okay, but they also knew that we loved them enough to help them move towards healing? And what if we started to see, please Jesus, what if we started to see masses of people spiritually renewed and personally restored what if we became a hospital I pray that we will would you take a few moments as we close our time and just ask the Lord how would you want me to fill in this sentence this week spirit what are you stirring up this week I will this week I will maybe embrace forgiveness for the first time this week maybe I will I'm going to ask for prayer Maybe this week I will carry a corner. This week I will. This week I will. Because Jesus, we we don't wanna be hearers of the word only. We wanna be doers of the word. We wanna be sent in your way with your heart. And we know that you came not to call the righteous, but to call the sick. May we do the same. And when it gets messy and uncomfortable, maybe a little bit unknown, would we remember that it's at that point that we're right in the center of your mission? Lord, would you overwhelm us with people who need to know there's forgiveness in your name? Would you overwhelm us with people who we can surround with prayer and care to see healing? and restoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.